Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 26th of June 2021 and this is episode 213. On today's Dispatches podcast, historian Dr Paul Harris talks about his recent book on the life and career of General Sir Herbert Lawrence. This book is published by Helian & Co. Paul spoke to me over the interweb from his home in Bath. Hey Paul, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yeah, okay, Tom. Um... Basically, I have always had an interest in the war. What really happened to me was that the First World War almost became a second career in that I left my full first career, which was in the financial markets in the city. And then I went to Birmingham and did a master's degree that then led on uh, to a doctorate. And that's really um what started me, got me going into the war. I found out an awful lot more, obviously, uh, involved in that academic research. And then subsequently, I then had two books and a few articles published. So that's really the, the, the story of it. So tell me about Lawrence and his sort of family education, his personal life and his early upbringing in sort of Victorian England. Well, Lawrence was born in London in 1861 to an eminent family. Um, The Lawrence family originally hailed from Ireland, but they had a very long association with India. His father, Sir John Lawrence, was viceroy of India and his uncles were prominent figures in the subcontinent serving in the East India Company and in the British governing administration. Um, Lawrence was educated at Harrow. Um, There were a number of other senior military figures um, that served alongside Lawrence during the war at Harrow um, during the time he was there. Walter Congreve, John Davidson, Horace Smith Dorian, and of course, Winston Churchill um, a little later. Uh, At Harrow, there was a real emphasis on team sports and physical exercise when Lawrence was there. That would have very much suited him. Um, There are no records to indicate um, if he excelled in that arena at Harrow, though. Um, He goes on to Sandhurst in 1881. um, But joining the military was really not a foregone conclusion for him. Um, When he was a pupil at Harrow, One of the few letters um, that survived um, from this period that Lawrence wrote to his father, and he said, I quote, I think I've given up all idea of going into the army, and I will prefer to follow up the career you pointed out to me in business. That very much is an early portent of what was to come. Um, At Sandhurst, his um, conduct during training rated as good for his studies, very good for work outside of study, and he passes out with a creditable mark in his final exam. I think at this stage it would be fair to say that Lawrence was a promising young officer, but not yet standing one. In 1892, he married Isabel Mills, um, daughter of Lord Hillingdon and a member of the Mills banking family. This union um, joined together one of the most distinguished families 
in English finance with the Anglo-Indian Lawrence dynasty. And it was important because it also provided the possibility for Lawrence to develop a career away from the church. So can you tell me what his uh, career was um, from his graduation from Sandhurst up until the outbreak of the First World War? Yes, he was posted into the uh, commissioned into the 17th Lancers and posted to India um, in 1882. Uh, the Lancers, a prestigious regiment with a rich history, a cavalry uh, regiment, he engaged in the usual suits of young officers in the Raj, um, riding, playing polo, pig sticking. Um, but the regiment played no part in any campaigns during uh, the, that period. Um, uh, a fellow officer of Lawrence recalled that soldiering was really not taken very seriously. So he's in India with the Lancers for eight years. They return to Britain, undertake domestic duties. I think at this point, Lawrence really felt that if he was going to advance his career, he needed to do more. And he decided to try for entry to the staff college at Camberley. Um, he got in and went to Camberley in 1895. At this point, he's 34 years old, the captain in the Lancers. Now, interestingly, uh, Sir Douglas Haig um, joins uh, the staff course the year after Lawrence. So they're there at the same time. This two-year staff course was really the primary mechanism for educating the elite of the British Army, uh, preparing future leaders, planners and thinkers, either for staff posts or command. Now, Lawrence, he was an accomplished sportsman. He was a very good rider and a popular um, individual. The annual intake at Camley, only around 30 students. So it's obviously, I think, Hagen Lawrence would have known each other there, but not closely as they were a year apart. The next time Haig and Lawrence is in the South African War, um, so that's four years later after um, staff college. They both served on the staff of General Sir John French. Um, Haig and Lawrence very much seen as the jewels in the crown on French staff. Um, they served there for about nine months together, appeared to make a good team, but we've really no evidence of any personal rapport between them. Um, following the staff job, um, Lawrence commands the 16th Lancers for a brief time in South Africa and then goes back to his regiment, the 17th. This South African war experience was significant for Lawrence as it marks his first taste of life in the field and first experience of combat. So up to now, what I've described has been a rather smooth progression in his career. But now, at this point, he encounters a setback. Um, the role of commander of the 17th Lancers, Lawrence's regiment, became vacant. And I think Lawrence and many others expected him to get the job. But unfortunately, um, his hopes were not realised. Um, instead, in a rather controversial move, he, who was not a 17th Lancer, was appointed as an outsider to be the new commander of the regiment. Um, to most, this was a shock because Haig was from the 7th Hussars, held a shorter of service record than Lawrence. Um, so that was really a setback um, for Lawrence, I think. And a year or so later, he left the army. Uh, but, but why was that? Um, many have suggested it was as a result, Haig got the job and he didn't. He left in a fit of peak. 
But although he was probably disappointed, um, evidence I've uncovered would suggest that the situation was much more complex than that. I think his relations with Haig have remained fairly cordial. But we have to remember now that Lawrence was a married man. He was in his early 40s. He had children. Um, so I think rather than leaving the army um, due to disappointment or a fit of pique, it was out of concern for his wife's health should the regiment be posted back to India, which indeed it was in 1905. Um, and a letter from his brother-in-law shows that his wife Isabel would have suffered with the climate and the environment. So <clears throat> we have in 1903, um, Lawrence opts to bring his army career to a close and enters the world of finance. Um, he works in several financial firms before he actually joins the family bank Glynn Mills in 1907. So now war, war breaks out in 1914 and Lawrence is recalled to the colours. Could you set out what his wartime career was? Certainly, yeah. At the outbreak of war, um, remember he's coming back from retirement, so he's in effect a dugout. Um, he's appointed senior staff officer of um, the 2nd Yeomanry Division. Um, this, is a, this is a cavalry unit. Um, after some months in Britain guarding against German invasion, the division is sent out to Egypt in April 1915. Um, but Lawrence doesn't stay long in Cairo because in June 1915, just a couple of months later, he's sent to Gallipoli to take command of 127th Manchester Brigade. Um, their CO is killed in action um, and Lawrence is brought in to replace him. So Lawrence has now risen from being a retired major to a brigadier general in less than a year. And he leads the brigade during the Battle of Krithia Vineyard. Um, in August 1915, um, his promotion continues and he takes command of a division. Um, he's brought in to revive the 52nd Lowland Division. That unit had suffered heavy casualties and was at a very low ebb. Now, when operations finally finished on the Gallipoli Peninsula in January 1916, Lawrence oversees the final withdrawal. After this, he finds himself back in Egypt, pre preparing to defend the Suez Canal from uh, the Turkish threat. But now Lawrence is in command of what was effectively a small corps. And in April 1916, that small corps um, was victorious at the Battle of Romani, the Sinai, against the invading Turk. And that battle has been seen as pivotal in that it marks the point at which Britain stopped defending the Suez Canal and set about driving the Turkish forces back. Now, after Romani, um, we have another controversial incident in Lawrence's career. Um, he didn't get on with Sir Archibald Murray, who led the British army in Egypt. Um, Lawrence believed Murray was always micromanaging and interfering, and he disagreed with Murray's plan to invade Palestine. So Lawrence, at this point, considers resigning over the matter, but external events supersede that decision. Um, the death of his son, Michael, on the Somme in September 1916 was a shattering blow for Lawrence. We have to remember that his eldest son, Oliver, 
had been killed at Festubert the previous year. So it was very difficult to bear um, the death of his second son. And after he returned to Britain, um, after several months trying to come to terms with his tra- tragedy, Lawrence decides to re-enter the fray. Um, he's given command of um, a home service division. Now, he could have stayed there for the rest of the war, but he was determined to get back to active service. And his opportunity came um, in February 1917 when he was given command of the 66th Division, not a great um, fighting formation. It was a second line territorial division. But he takes this inexperienced formation out to France in March 17, and it becomes embroiled in some of the heaviest fighting of the war. Lawrence instigated thorough training program to bring the unit up to combat readiness. And the unit does pretty well. Certainly, um, it was sent up to the Belgian coast initially to support Operation Hush. That was an amphibious landing that never materialised. But it was involved in pretty heavy fighting there. It found itself in autumn 1917 diverted to the Battle of Third Ypres and it suffered badly at Polkapel in October 1917. I would argue poor logistics, terrible terrain, the attack should have been postponed. Um, but yeah, that was really uh, Lawrence's career uh, before uh, up to him going into um, GHQ. And how did Lawrence perform his role and how did his character shape the way he approached his work? Well, that's an interesting question. I think during the South African War, um, he, he earned a lot of plaudits, performed very well alongside Haig as a staff officer on French's staff. I think owing to his length pre-war military career, you've got to remember that Lawrence comes back as, as a retired officer. Um, he was viewed within the army as a capable individual, um, safe pair of hands. Um, I think that's why he was entrusted with command of the Manchester Brigade at Gallipoli. And soon after that, he was given another job tasked with sorting out the chaotic lines of communication on Mudros, which is the main shipping base for Gallipoli, on the island of Lemnos. And uh, over the next month or so, Lawrence does a fantastic job in entirely reorganising communications at Mudros and earns the gratitude of Sri and Hamilton, commander of the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, for that work. But Lawrence doesn't want to stay on Mudros. He wants to get back into the field get back with these men in the field. And so he petitions and gets back to commanding the Manchester Regiment. But So I think we, um, in August 15, remember he gets promoted again. He's brought in to sort out the 52nd Lowland. And I think that's because now he has the credentials as a bit of a troubleshoot. And in uh, Sir Ian Hamilton wrote to Kitchener, about Lawrence and really said that his work with 57 Lowland was analogous to changing water into wine. Um, He did so well to change the downcast Lowland division into keen, bright and reliable soldier. So, um, yeah, Lawrence really starts to earn his reputation. It reflects his ability to be able to go train a formation, bring it up to scratch and turn things around. Um, I think, again, this is why after Gallipoli, 
He's given a corps in Egypt um, that clearly reflected his high standing in the army. But as we just said earlier, he clashed with his commander, Murray. And here we start to see um, the, the character of Lawrence, an independent figure, his own man. He does not like to be micromanaged. Um, and I think finally on, on, on this question, we need to look at Paul Capel, um, the attack of 66 Division. Heavy losses are incurred, um, similar to um, a high level of loss incurred by the Manchester Brigade in Gallipoli. I think both of these affected Lawrence deeply. And it was very likely that both of these, which were poorly prepared, probably shouldn't have gone ahead, given the conditions at Ypres or the lack of men that Lawrence was given at Gallipoli. They really influenced Lawrence in his future role as chief of general staff. So Lawrence was in his mid-50s when the First World War uh, was, was, was being fought. What sort of man was he in terms of interpersonal relations? How would we find him if we met him in, you know, at a social function? Well, I think he was a man who was able to really get on with anybody. Um, we have evidence from all kinds of different individuals, from the privates who work with him, the clerks, all the way up to his peers, um, that Lawrence was a very, he was a very affable individual. Um, you've got to remember, he possessed independent wealth. He'd worked as a merchant banker in the city. So he could go back there whenever he chose. Uh, he was not dependent on his army career. So he would not kowtow to anybody. Um, he'd enjoyed power. Uh, as a holder of a variety of directorships before the war, he was part of a network of wealthy individuals who exercised considerable influence in the financial and commercial world. Lawrence was accustomed to dealing with successful people who wielded significant power. He possessed natural authority and confidence. Um, one historian had described um, the strength of character and a degree of rectitude which Lawrence had, they were the secret of his authority over his fellow men. Um, he was physically tall and lean, uh, an impressive individual. Um, there were some people in the army joked that Lawrence wore golden spurs, uh, which reflected his wealthy status. But I think his wealth, his independent spirit, his confidence allowed him to challenge the orthodoxy. Um, he was astute, regal in appearance. He possessed great presence and that really paid dividends in his dealings with the army commanders. Um, the, the army commanders in 1918 dubbed the wicked barons by someone at GHQ. Um, and individuals such as uh, Ferdinand Foch, uh, French generalissimo, um, Lawrence would deal with them all uh, on really an e what he saw as an equal footing, even though they were some of them, many of them senior in rank to him. Now, in 1918, Lawrence is appointed as uh, Sir Douglas Haig's chief of staff, replacing Sir Lancelot Kiggle. How did Lawrence get this job? Well, I think for many, the appointment of Lawrence uh, as chief of staff was quite a surprise. Uh, one of them was certainly the prime minister, Lloyd George, who, after the war, in his memoir, declared that he was astonished that Lawrence was ever appointed um, to that position. Uh, Lloyd George remarked that, quote, nothing but a genius of the highest order 
could justify such dazzling promotion with such scant experience, unquote. Um, Lloyd George claimed that Haig had overlooked a number of much more suitable candidates to appoint Lawrence, um, and he inferred, Lloyd George, that Lawrence got the job because he was a cavalier. It was nepotism on a grand scale. Um, A charge that I think looks extremely shaky, um, Lawrence was not Haig's first choice. Um, that was uh, Lieutenant General Sir Richard Butler. Um, but Butler uh, was um, rejected by the War Office. In fact, Lawrence uh, was originally appointed uh, as head of intelligence as a replacement for John Chartres. But it was when Butler was turned down um, that Lawrence was then um, promoted from intelligence chief of staff. Um, who put forward Lawrence for that job? We don't really know. Um, Haig claimed it was him. Um, the most likely candidate, I think, was Lord Derby, Secretary of State for War. There was another suggestion that it was Lord Stanfordham, George V's private secretary, but we don't really know. So he's appointed as Chief of Staff. Now, what exactly was that role and how do you rate his performance um, in, in performing that role? Um, Well, the role of the chief of staff was critical at GHQ. And I think what Lawrence did was he actually um, came in and changed a great deal about how the chief of staff operated and how the whole GHQ team uh, worked and many of the individuals within that team. So when Lawrence comes in in early GHQ, he's really determined that Things are going to happen different. Um, he tells a colleague at the time, um, he wasn't sure he could get on with Hay, but he, he would not be working on the same lines as Kidgel. Uh, very much characteristic of uh, Lawrence's independent spirit. Um, when he comes in, he's opening Gambit. He insists that he should attend every meeting Haig has with any other member of GHQ. Um, Lawrence believed that Kidgel had been operating more like a, an aide, a senior aide to Haig, rather than a chief of staff. Um, he's determined to change that, and he very much does change that. Um, whilst Haig and Lawrence perhaps never became close, they forged a professional relationship built upon mutual respect. And I would contend that Lawrence brought really two critical aspects to the table at GHQ. Um, his business experience and his understanding of frontline command condition. You've got to remember, Lawrence had been in the field. He had commanded in the field. Um, Kidgel had not done that. Um, the first thing I think that Hague, Hague and Lawrence did, they got out to visit the troops far more than had previously occurred. Um, Lawrence uh, restructured the operation. He created a separate planning team headed by uh, John Dill. Dill became a field marshal in the Second World War, obviously a very talented officer. Um, Lawrence reintroduced liaison officers in order to make contact maintain contact with frontline formation. Um, his eye for talent was great. Um, he brings in new people. Uh, Edgar Cox to head up intelligence um, and later after Cox sadly um, dies in a drowning incident Sidney Clive he brings in Guy Dornay as deputy chief of staff Um, Dornay undertook a complete overhaul of training the BEF Um, he revolutionised the whole of the training arrangements there and Lawrence developed a very good relationship with Sir Travers Clark who ran 
Q branch of the staff that was responsible for supplies and logistics. Uh, Clark, a very energetic individual, um, brought new vigour into this aspect of the war and run the department like an up-to-date competitive business, something that Lawrence would very much have approved of. Um, and finally, I'd say that Lawrence built a much better relationship with the French. He developed a good understanding of Foch. On several occasions, Lawrence intervenes to smooth inter-allied friction. When Haig was away, Lawrence assumed overall charge and proved himself very capable of holding his own with the French and making independent judgment. I think it represented a considerable improvement on the previous uneasy state of affairs with our senior ally. So if Lawrence played such a major role on the general staff, why don't we know more about him? An excellent question. Um, he hated publicity. He loathed the press. And I, I think that's probably one of the reasons why his contribution to the war has been neglected. And then I think if we look at historians, historians tended to focus very much on field commanders um, or on men in the combat areas, uh, men in the fighting line, rather than staff officers. I think the staff has really not been seen as a very sexy subject. Um, and also, you've got to remember, the general opprobrium levelled at the staff um, has really resulted in their contribution being overlooked. And I think Lawrence was just part of uh, all of that, really. And so what happened to him uh, after the war? Because he was 58 in 1918, so he was actually quite old um, in, sort of in Edwardian terms. He was quite old in Edwardian terms, and one, perhaps one would have expected Lawrence to have retired after the war. <laughs> Very much the opposite. Um, he was keen to get back into the, into the city, resume his financial career. Um, perhaps all of this industry that he displays after the war um, distracted him from the loss of his sons, Michael and Oliver. Over the past, the two post-war decades, Lawrence achieved sufficient prominence in the financial world. He became known as the father of the city, um, a sound and trusted advisor, really an iconic figure uh, in the London financial community in the 20s and 30s. Um, he's made managing partner at Glyn Mills Bank. Uh, he held, holds uh, an assortment of directorships in other companies. Um, Lawrence joined the board of Vickers the armaments manufacturer in the 20s. Five years later, he's made chairman. Um, the company at this point was in some disarray. And remember, again, we've got the troubleshooting skills of Lawrence. He's brought in and he was instrumental in returning it to financial health. Um, all of these directorships and responsibilities in the financial world uh, give Lawrence uh, access to a wide circle of influential people. Uh, amongst the most important, Montague Norman, chairman of the Bank of England. Um, on the military front, he was appointed chairman of the Imperial Wargraves Commission from 1926, and he held that post until a few weeks before his death in 1943. And Lawrence was also involved with the Officers Association that raised funds for officers who'd had trouble finding work after the war. Um, so his death, Lawrence's death in 1943, marked the passing of someone who'd been an influential figure, not just during the army, but also during the interwar years in Britain in the 20s and 30s in the financial um, community and also helping with the post-war uh, military as well. 
And my penultimate question, Paul, is what projects are you currently working on? Um, well, at the moment, I've just actually um, finished um, a project about an officer called uh, Alfred Davis. Uh, this has been published in Stand 2, actually, of the Western Front Association um, under the title of the youngest um, lieutenant. Um, but the other uh, area that I'm looking at at the moment um, and the working title for this is starting at rock bottom um, are some of these new army divisions because what's extraordinary about these new army divisions is uh, they, they start off from scratch at the beginning of the war. Um, really, things uh, don't look too good for them um, in terms of their competence. But by the end of the war, they evolve into extremely efficient and extremely effective fighting units, um, many of them better than regulars. So what I'm looking at there is what, it, what effect did the staff play in that? Is it that particularly good staff officers came to those new army units. So I, I want to look at all of that aspect of the staff in terms of the new army. And finally, where can people find out more about your book? Uh, well, in terms of that, that book is published uh, by Helion, um, but you can also find that on my uh, website as well. Let me give you the URL for that. Uh, it's www.harrisfirstworldwar.com. So that's harrisfirstworldwar.com. Paul, thank you very much for your time. Well, well, that's great. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>